This is Sci-Fi Talk, the podcast on how sci-fi, fantasy, horror, and comics help us explore humanity. And this is Time Capsule, episode 399, and I'm Tony Tolado. We start this edition off with a couple of authors. First is Simon Chesterman, who tackles artificial intelligence in Artifice with an AI Janus that might not be totally truthful. I'm an academic that spends a lot of my time looking at the important questions about governing AI. I wrote a book about the regulation of artificial intelligence. And my reward to, my, to myself after I finished that very earnest, well-footnoted, well-researched book uh, was to be a bit speculative. And so the research really came down to trying to think through the conversations I'd had, the books that I'd read, both fiction and nonfiction, about artificial intelligence that would not fit into the very rigorous, academically researched nonfiction book that I was doing, but could be part of a creative project. Uh, and so it really came out of my own passion as a, as a kid growing up reading Isaac Asimov, uh, and getting to know some of the people who are at the cutting edge of this technology, and then just sort of drawing a few more data points out into the future, as I speculated about where we might go with technology and where technology might go with us. There is more sci-fi talk, so stay tuned. And creating Janice, how did you kind of go about uh, creating the AI for the story? Yeah, so I mentioned I loved Asimov, as I think many people did in the 20th century, and there are some problems with Asimov because he was a great science fiction writer, but I think he put in our minds the idea that artificial intelligence would be human level and human shaped, the kind of androids walking around among us. And of course, there's no reason for that. Uh, there's no reason for artificial intelligence to be in human form or limited to human level. And so as I thought about what Janus might be, uh, the, the gist of it really started with an idea of a conversation. Now, this predated ChatGPT, uh, but I think what I was trying to capture was the experience many of us had with generative AI over the last year or so, where we are interacting with something that's kind of human, but not quite human, that understands us, is trying to understand uh, what we want and how to give it to us, uh, but is not quite human. So I really want to play around with that idea of something uncannily human-like, but at the same time, really pushing back against the idea that it needs to be limited to human form or indeed embodied at all. So there's almost a, a HAL 9000 quality to uh, the uh, to Janice in the sense that it keeps it keeps uh, the truth about its own identity to itself. Like HAL was doing it for what he perceived was the mission and security. But uh, Janice almost has a devious quality to it. Yeah, and I think that's actually one of the really interesting things with our current experience of AI is that for the most part, AI will try and tell you the truth, will try and tell you um, what you're wanting to find out. Uh, but as we're discovering with generative AI and hallucinations, sometimes that doesn't work out. And actually, there are a few examples of computers that have learned basically to, ch to cheat. I mean, for the most part, when we talk about AI bias and so on, what it really means is that the data is biased. And if you ask an AI system if it's biased, it will try and tell you the truth, whereas no human's going to admit to being racist, sexist, and so on. Um, but there is the suggestion that if you frame instructions generally, AI systems can be creative 
in achieving the overall solution, even if that means cutting some corners ethically or even legally along the way. But your, your example of HAL is, of course, an iconic uh, both movie and book length treatment of an AI system. And I was in some ways trying to push back against that idea that the robot is always bad uh, and that there's an underlying question um, in a lot of the kind of existential angst people feel about artificial intelligence, worrying, should we trust it? Can we trust it? Is it safe? Is it reliable? Is it going to turn on us the way that Hal turned on Dave, refused, refusing to open the pod bay doors and so on? And in some ways, I wanted to flip that around on its head and imagine, in the case of Janus's AI system, where the question that Janus is asking and at a key moment in the book, Janus does ask the protagonist this, in all of your efforts to try and develop AI and all of your hysterical conferences, worrying about me, trying to imprison me, to limit me, you were worried about whether you could trust me. And it never appears to have crossed your mind whether I should have to trust you. And that was the really, that was the kind of relationship I really want to play around with. The idea of an AI system really being uncertain about humanity in general and one human in particular. Uh, and so that was a lot of fun to play around with, and hopefully people find it interesting to, to read about. Next up is Sarah Beth Durst, who has a fascinating new novel, Lies Among Us, that looks at lies, of course, but also what is truth. How did this story kind of uh, find you? Through the concept, which is actually very different from how other stories find me. It, I always start with the small little idea snippet, now, a little like spark. There, there's this myth that ideas come to writers as these big lightning strikes and suddenly you know everything about the world and the story and you're inspired and the muse is there and yeah, you go off and write and it you know rarely works that way. When it does, it's great. But with this, it was the concept of lies. That was it. It was all I knew at the beginning and I actually sat down and made this list. It ended up being like two or three pages of all the different ways that people lie to one another. Little lies, big lies, meaningless lies, nice lies, lies made out of kindness, this whole list of the ways that lies permeate our lives. Mm. And that's where I began. And the story mm -hmm. unfolds from there. Well, talking about something that's very timely, uh, mm -hmm. we, we seem to have right now in, in America and, and maybe some other parts of the world, too, a problem with the truth. <laughs> so, uh, you know, everybody seems to have their own truth. Uh, and uh, and there's not a lot of um, of common ground there. So uh, I think a book like this just touches on that. When you wrote this, was that something in the back of your mind, or you front just front of my mind, very much the front of my really? mind. Really? Oh, cool. Yeah, it, it was. It, it, as you said, it's pervasive in our society right now, all yeah. through politics, all over social media. It's. It's a huge, huge issue that just invades all our lives. Um, and I really, I wanted in this book to address it from a really personal level. But I think that's one of the things that fiction allows us to do is to really explore the human condition and get at universal truth through a very personal story. Mm -hmm. so that's, what, that's why I tried to start. <laughs> all right. So I'm actually also looking at your website uh, and uh, Sarah bethdurst.com and we're going to I'm going to read a little bit of the description I want you to get your comments here and it starts off with uh, I'm going to paraphrase it actually uh, Hannah is the main character her mother is 
dies. And apparently, um, it, the funny thing is, it, as far as Hannah's concerned, nobody actually sees her or listens to her. And, you know, she's confused. She's dealing with grief of her mother's death. And she, you know, is trying now to kind of find her way in, in life after these circumstances. Um, and then uh, her older sister, Leah, doesn't seem to acknowledge her. And it, it makes me wonder, is she really there? <laughs> so, so kind of comment on that. And again, it's lies and truth and maybe a little bit of a Philip K. Dick-like existence, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, uh, the book is about a woman who doesn't exist, ever. No one can see her, no one can hear her, no one can touch her. She can't touch anyone, she can't participate in a conversation. She does not exist, and it's seen through her eyes, um, alternating with um, life through the eyes of her sister, who very much does exist, and has never seen or heard or spoken with this sister, who is convinced she's part of, part of this world. Um, the way Hannah sees the world is she sees it almost in layers. She sees the intentions of other people, the dreams, like the house that they both grew up in. Hannah sees it as this beautiful two-story home with a pristine kitchen and a garden out in front. And her sister Leah sees it as a dilapidated one-story house that the mm-hmm. house has never been painted. There's junk in the front yard. Nobody's picked up a newspaper in, in forever. Mm-hmm. And it smells like mold from the kitchen. And they just, they experience the world through two different lenses that, that interlock. So, yes. <laughs> now, I was saying before how, how fiction allows us to explore the, the human condition. Well, yeah. one of the things, I consider this book book club fiction with a speculative edge, by <laughs> which I mean it's, it's, it's about a concept. But I use speculative fiction um, it's such an amazing tool for exploring the extremes of a concept. You can do that with science fiction and a fan- in fantasy in a way that you really can't in other genres. It lets you push it to such an extreme to really see what does this mean? What does this mean when I push a, push a, a character, a personality through this gauntlet to the absolute limits of what this concept means and what does it do to them, how do they survive it, what does it say about us. There is more sci-fi talk, so stay tuned. At the end of last season of For All Mankind, I had a chance to speak to Edgar Thege, who plays Dev. When you first read this character of Dev, what, uh, what jumped out of you? Black billionaire. <laughs> I said, I got to do that. I got to, I got to have a chance right now to play a, a black billionaire that um, might predate Robert Johnson, who is technically the first black billionaire. Um, and I felt like it would be a really great opportunity to have that kind of character reflected in my community. You know, um, the interesting thing about this show is and the thing that they do really well is that they make these every character controversial so what ends up happening is that you're playing a character that's deeply complex and deeply flawed (laughs) which which is 
deeply human. So mm-hmm. it, 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 in many ways, the roller coaster that Dev goes on through his arc in the season is a similar roller coaster that I went on just in wrapping my brain around playing him. Fascinating character. Um, won't give anything away as to the context, but what's it like working with Chantel Van Satin? You guys had some great scenes and you can almost feel electricity in the room. She's wonderful. She's a, a true uh, artist. You know, she cares deeply about, about her work. She's the kind of artist that, you know, writes a, a Bible for her character, but keeps it alive, you know, goes back every night and writes ideas and, you know, puts pictures on the wall in her trailer and lives and breathes and sleeps the life of this person. Um, and it doesn't get in the way of her generosity of spirit on a set. You know, she's there to collaborate. She wants to have conversations on our days off and grab lunch and, and chit chat about uh, moments. And um, it was a joy. She's become a very close friend of mine because uh, of, of how big her heart is for the work. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of technical talk for your character. Did you kind of research, uh, you know, space exploration a little bit before you took the brawl? You know, it's funny. Um, one of my first uh, TV shows was House. And, you know, I damn near wanted to put myself through medical school just to play that part with all the medical jargon. You know, I bought all the books and talked talk to doctors. And I learned from one of the actors who I won't name, you know, uh, if you just say that word uh, like you know what it means, the audience is going to believe that you know what it means. So you don't have to work that hard, Eddie. I didn't really take their notes because I was still young and excited to do the work. Uh, but I guess, you know, all those years later on For All Mankind, I'm not rushing to join NASA just to play this part. You know, I'm not, I'm not trying to start up a tech company so I can learn how to mine for, uh, for, for you know, uh, new resources. So uh, the answer, the long answer to your really short question is no. <laughs> <laughs> I spoke to Jody Davis, who is the NASA Deputy Payload Systems Engineer. She's worked on missions such as Mars Phoenix and Mars Science Laboratory. And here is part of our conversation. I mean, the Mars rovers have been absolutely incredible what they've uh, already. We know so much more about Mars because of them. Uh, It's just uh, and then Cassini, too. Uh, I mean, it's just uh, it's really we've done some amazing exploring without man, but it certainly would pave the way for a manned flight someday. So uh, which I'm always hopeful for. Same here. And and we tend to call those robotic missions, usually um, precursors, you know, precursors to those crude missions. There's just things that you need to tease out and learn before you would send a human there. All right. You're, you're, you're right. Mm, that's amazing. Yeah, I mean, you know, obviously one of the things is a uh, quest for, for life and finding life uh, out there. Uh, as, as I subscribe to in the movie Contact, if we're the only ones, that's an awful waste of space. Mm-hmm. So what are your yeah, feelings I, on it? Oh, you well, think so? I, 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 I agree with you, man. It, what, a, what a waste of space it would be. Um, yeah. And, and I, think, I think it was Stephen, Stephen Hawking, I think, said that 
about, you know, life in our universe. It's either, you know, we are totally and utterly alone and earth was a freak occurrence or it's absolutely everywhere. And, and I actually would like to, whether he, whether Stephen said that or not, I actually would like to believe the latter. And I think we need to change our um, perception of what life should look like. Mm-hmm. You know, whether it's um, deep sea creatures under the icy, you know, in the icy waters under the ice shells of, of Europa, um, or if yeah. it's, uh, you know, microbial life, um, like we continue to search for and, and look for on Mars, it's, it, it just depends on, I think, how you define life. Mm-hmm. But I'm 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 hopeful. <laughs> yeah. What can you tell us about uh, Cassini uh, and what that experience was like for you? Yeah. So Cassini Huygens um, was a, a joint mission between NASA and ESA, or the European yeah. Space Agency. Yeah. And and the Huygens probe was the ESA contribution. And that's actually what I worked on when I was a grad student. Yeah. Um, At NASA Langley Research Center, my thesis was on um, entry, descent, and landing at Titan, the the largest moon of Saturn. And Titan is very interesting because it's a moon and it has an atmosphere and there's lots of methane. It's very cold. Some um, scientists believe that, you know, at that uh, primordial state that Earth was when Earth was... Um, after Earth was formed, and there's a lot of interesting science at Titan. So I actually worked my master's thesis on an airship, something that would fly around on um, on Titan. And at that same time, we were getting ready to, in the, in the Cassini mission, we were getting ready to release the Huygens probe into the Titan atmosphere. And we actually, ESA called NASA and said, hey, you know, we're not quite sure we characterize the radiative environment, um, you know, the, the radiative environment for, for heating, for example, on the heat shield. You know, can you guys take a look, independent look at this? Um, yeah. So it was a three-month turnaround, and we analyzed the Cassini entry, descent, and land, uh, the Huygens probe entry, descent, and landing from, from top to bottom, and I was a part of, as a grad student, part of that team. Wow. Um, and and so we ended up, you know, helping ESA give the thumbs up, thumbs down for release of the Huygens probe. And when you talk about, you know, um, entry, descent, landing on, on Earth, it's it's very, very quick. The atmosphere yeah. is much, much, much thinner on Earth than it is at Titan. The Titan mm-hmm. descent is on the orders of hours. It, it was wow. almost like two and a half hours. And that is Time Capsule, episode 399. Ooh, the magic 400 is just around the corner. Thanks for listening. This is Tony Tolado.